0: Well, it's great to be with you all this morning. I just completed my annual pilgrimage to Southwood. And uh, I'm back home. A husband and wife had been married for 60 years and had no secrets except for one. The woman kept in her closet a shoebox that she forbade her husband from ever opening. But when she was on her deathbed... And with her blessing, he opened the box and found a crocheted doll and $95,000 in cash. (laughs) My mother told me that the secret to a happy marriage was never to argue, she explained. Instead, I should keep quiet and crochet a doll. Her husband was touched. Only one doll was in the box. That meant she'd been angry with him only once in 60 years. But what about this money, he asked. Oh, she said, that's the money I made from selling the dolls. (laughs) Well, my prayer is that there's no crocheting in your home this Christmas. Actually, uh, $95,000, that's not bad money. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. You know, Christmas is almost here. Some of the kids are counting. Three more days, then I get to open my presents. This is a time of celebration, anticipation of gifts, good food, shopping. Oh, we don't want to mention that. Uh, Fighting the crowds, looking for deals, maybe looking for a gift for that guy who gave you that bum gift last year. Hanging the lights, doing all the decorations in the home. Very important to keep the wife happy. Getting together with family and friends. Maybe going to Pebble Creek to see the lights. You know, they actually have a competition there, I think. All the Christmas lights at Pebble Creek. I think those people are crazy. (laughs) Um, How about a hayride in Central Park? Uh, Santa's Wonderland. I've never been there yet. Because every time I drive by, I see those long lines of cars. And I said, not this year. Well, this is a fun time of the year, isn't it? My wife and I were talking the other night and saying, You know, we get so busy with all of these traditions, and and it's things that we have created. It's our culture. This is how we celebrate Christmas. And it's become so busy that you really don't get to do the things that you should, which is relaxing and enjoying the story of his birth, the miracle of his birth, And pondering this son of God. We really don't get time to do all that, do we? Because we're so busy with everything else. And you know, every year, it becomes sadly apparent that fewer and fewer Americans understand what Christmas really means. Christmas is an international celebration of a moment in history on planet earth. When God's eternal Son, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, became a genuine member of the human race in order to die for our sins upon a cross. Humanity is lost. It's fallen, separated from God because of sin. And its only hope for forgiveness was for someone who who was completely without sin to take on the punishment for all of our sins. And such a perfect life, a perfect love, were impossible for any human to achieve. So guess what? God did it himself. He sent his son from eternity into mortality. From glory into flesh. From a throne to a manger. Thomas Watson Made this com- uh, quote. I'm quoting him. He says, That man should be made in God's image is a wonder. But that man should be made, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. And he goes on to say, That the ancient of days would be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. This is the immeasurable gift of Christmas. Jesus, God's own son, coming to live with us, God with us, Emmanuel, in order to save his people from their sins, and that through his poverty, we might become rich. The miraculous gift of Christmas is God being born in a manger, so that we could be born again in his glory. Now, if you want to Read about the birth of Christ. You obviously go to the Gospels. The Gospels is all about the life of Christ. And there are two Gospels that give us the account of the birth of Christ. Matthew and Luke. Matthew begins his Gospel with the genealogy. Showing the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That Jesus was going to be born in David's line. Prophesied hundreds of years earlier. But Luke, interestingly... Starts his gospel with two unusual births. First, John the Baptist. And second, the birth of Jesus. Now what do you expect? He's a doctor. So he was fascinated by these births. These were very unusual. And uh, so he begins with the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. And so uh, he talks about uh, his parents... Zach and Liz had prayed, wait a minute, Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed all their married years for a child, and they were unable to conceive. Now in that culture, and even in some cultures today, not to be able to conceive was looked down upon. In fact, it was even looked looked at as if it was God's uh, judgment for sin. And um, they would be called barren. Elizabeth was called barren. You know, it's interesting, even in India today, it's a stigma if you can't have kids. And it's not unheard of to hear of a woman committing suicide because she was unable to bear a child. And so this was kind of the situation. Zacharias and Elizabeth had actually gotten old to where there was no hope for bearing children. And an angel appears to Zacharias and says, Elizabeth is going to have a son. Your wife is going to have a son. And his name is going to be John. Now John would be unique. His purpose would be very special. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the one who when he saw Jesus announced to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's John the Baptist. Very, very special person and a unique birth. And it's interesting to see that Elizabeth's barrenness and her old age, a double symbol of hopelessness, this would be the means by which God would announce to the world that nothing is impossible with God. And then Luke describes Jesus' birth. In verses 26 to 35 in chapter 1. And it's obviously uh, uh, being a physician and a doctor. He was just intrigued by this virgin birth. This is something amazing. I've never heard of this before. How is this possible? I'm really interested. So guess what? He researched it. In fact... Everything you read in Luke, well, everything in the whole Bible, for a matter of fact, but Luke specifically says in the very first three verses of the gospel that I have researched and investigated all of the accounts that which I am writing about. So he got to the bottom of it. And what you see here, my friends, is something that he has already investigated. So what you see here is true, it's history, it's fact. It's worthy to note that the most fully described record of the virgin birth is in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew simply mentions that Jesus was born of a virgin mother. Um, But Luke goes into the matter very carefully in such a way that it cannot be denied. Interestingly, the most vivid description of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is also in Luke's Gospel. You know, being a doctor, he was interested in the body and he got all the details. You see no other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin birth. And it happened exactly as Luke described it. Otherwise we Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is the result of Mary's infidelity or even if he is the child of Joseph's marital union with Mary then he's not God. If he's not God, his claims are false. And if his claims are false, then salvation is a hoax. And if salvation is a hoax, then we are all doomed. The virgin birth is crucial, critical, essential doctrine of the scriptures. It is the foundation... Of everything that the Bible says about Jesus. To reject the virgin birth is to reject the deity of Christ. It is to reject the accuracy and the authority of the scriptures. And it is to reject a host of other doctrines that lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. If we deny that Jesus is God, then we have denied the essence of Christianity. Everything else the Bible teaches about Christ hinges on the truth that we celebrate at Christmas. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. The birth of Christ, my friends, is not some kind of fabrication or legend or some kind of mythology, but it is historical fact thoroughly researched by Dr. Luke. The virgin birth, in my estimation, is as crucial as the resurrection in substantiating the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John and chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And the first few verses, the first three verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there you have it. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And if anyone says otherwise, he's not of the right spirit. Back in Luke chapter 1, as he describes the birth of Jesus, he begins in verse 26 and says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. So it says Mary was engaged to Joseph. So engagement in that day is not the same as we have it today. In fact, in in Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, marriage had two stages. The first one is the betrothal period. And this is called the Kiddushin. And uh, this is as legally binding as marriage. If at any time during this betrothal period, if either of the couple was unfaithful, um, they would have to uh, file a formal divorce would be required to nullify the marriage contract. In other words, in the eyes of the public during this period, they were as good as married. But they did not live with each other. They lived in separate homes. They even called themselves husband and wife. But they had no physical relationship whatsoever. And this is the first period. The second period in the Hebrew marriage is obviously the, uh, the wedding. It's called the chuppah. And this is like our modern day wedding. Except uh, it was a much bigger deal in those days, in that culture. In fact, the marriage ceremony would go on for like seven days. No wonder they ran out of wine. <laughs> Actually, in some cultures, even today, marriages go on for a long time. In India, the Hindu marriages, they go for a, a seven days as well. And it's a community affair. Everybody knows who's getting married. All the neighbors know. And, and everybody comes in and it's a wonderful time of celebration. It's, it's really not like how we do it here. I mean, we have fun here too. But, you know, here we do is we have our list. You know, and then if you're the if you're the bride's father, you take a good look at that list. <laughs> so, wait a minute, I want to revise this list. So you have revision number one. You know, then you look at your finances, you look at the reception hall. We need a revision number two. And we try to eliminate people. Not so in the wedding in the east. Even in India today, it's a community affair. It's a it's a celebration where many, many people are involved. And so the angel appeared during this first period when they were betrothed as good as marriage, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I was just thinking, just imagine a Mary. Mary's looking forward to the chuppah the wedding. She's thinking about Joseph, what a handsome guy he is. He's a carpenter. That's really cool. What can I have him make for me? What's the house going to look like? What's it going to be like living with Joseph? And she's having all these thoughts. And then, boom, angel appears. Hail, favored one. Scared the daylights out of her. (laughs) If you look at verse 29, that's what it says. She was greatly troubled. She was scared. What is it about angels? Every time an angel appears, the first thing they say is, Don't be afraid. They must be scary. You know, it's nothing like, the way we think of angels today, right? These cute little creatures with wings and uh, baby faces and Cupid, and uh, we got some on our tree, I think, and uh, you know, and Christmas cards. But that's not really in the Bible. They're scary. I mean, this is a different ball game here. So she was doubly troubled. Why was she troubled? Firstly, because it was an angel, and angels usually they're they're, they're guys. I guess some guys are scarier than others, some men. But they're usually referred in the masculine. And then she was troubled at what the angel said. The angel said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And so before even she could say anything, the angel explained. The angel explained in verses 30 uh, 30 and 31. Don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will name him Jesus. You know, this prophecy had been done, has been prophesied. And hundreds of years, prophets had foretold the coming of the Messiah. And every Jew anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And thousands of young women wondered who would be the favored one. After centuries of what must have felt like God's silence... Mary learned that she was the favored one. She would be the mother of the Messiah. Thousands of Hebrew women over uh, thousands of years had hoped to be the one to bring forth the Savior of the world. It was an honor that was too high to describe. And in verse 32 and 33, the angel continues and says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is God's plan of redemption. Which he devised before creating the world. God originally established the hope of a savior all the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3. And he inspired the authors of the Old Testament to keep this hope alive through millennia in the hearts of believers. In fact, the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies and promises about the coming of the Messiah. One of them was Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So this monumental news of the incarnation broke with supernatural surprise to Mary. I mean, she was trying to figure all this out. And as she tries to understand what's going on, she, uh, she says, wait a minute. How can this be? I'm a virgin. Literally in the Greek text, it says, how will this be? Since a man I do not know. You see, Mary knew without a shadow of a doubt that she had been pure. She had been faithful. And the only way to conceive is to have sexual relations with a man. And so she was stumped. How can this be? Then the angel explains, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. You see, the angel used imagery and terminology that every Jew would have been familiar with. Because it said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High. The Most High, that's a word every Jew would have recognized. It's the word for God, God Almighty, El Elyon. In fact, one scholar says that this particular phrase that is translated most high is a combination of El Elyon, El Shaddai, and Yahweh. All put together, the most high God. The one who is above all other gods. The one who is supreme. The one who is exalted. Mary, his power is what's going to make this happen. And then you see the word overshadow. They all recognize that word. Because when Moses led the people out of Egypt... God told Moses to build a tent, a tabernacle, a house of worship that they could take with them wherever they went. And then God told Moses, I will overshadow the tabernacle. I will overshadow the tent. In other words, my presence will be there. You will sense my presence. And so when Mary saw this and heard what The angel said, this is the power of the Most High. And that God, Most High, was going to overshadow Mary. She begins to get it. In fact, she says, she says, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. The angel is saying, God's spiritual presence would miraculously conceive a male child in Mary's womb. While the child will be human in every respect, he would not have a human father. His father would quite literally be God Almighty. That's why the virgin birth is so important. For Jesus to be God, he must be born of God. Joseph, a man, and Mary, a woman, cannot produce God. God cannot be born into this world by human processes. There's no way that he could be God apart from being conceived by God. And you know, the amazing fact is this. That Jesus' supernatural birth is the only way to explain his perfect life. His sinless life while he was here on earth. The chain of events that set off would change Mary's life and Joseph's life forever. You know, it's fascinating to me that out of the thousands of teenage girls in Israel that God chose Mary, it's astonishing. Out of all the women that he could have chosen, queens, princesses, daughters of wealthy people, influential people, he chose an unknown, unassuming, young peasant woman from an obscure village called Nazareth. Nazareth. I was thinking, you know... What would be an obscure town in Texas? (laughs) We know about North Zulch because you got to drive through there to get over here. But how about, how about Tuxedo, Texas? Anybody heard of Tuxedo? (laughs) Nobody. See how obscure it is? You know, the last time they took the census in Tuxedo, it is in West Texas. Uh, The last time they took the census in Tuxedo, you know what the population was? Forty-two. They closed the post office in 1980. So Nazareth. In fact, didn't Nathaniel say, Nazareth? What good thing comes out of Nazareth? Well, you know what? It's a reminder to us that God's plans and purposes do not unfold as us humans would choose. Because nothing is impossible with God. You know, we don't know much about Mary. And as I looked at the scriptures, she did have a sister, it seems like, Sister Salome. And obviously from the book of Luke, we find that she was related to Elizabeth, cousins. But other than that, we don't know hardly anything about Mary. Her life was obviously spent in Nazareth, probably a poor family, no doubt a hardworking woman, exceptionally virtuous, I would say, and godly in her character. But we get a little insight when we see how she responds to what the angel says. And this is where we see her faith as being so remarkable, because she calls herself a bond slave in verse 38. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Be it be done according to your word. Bond slave. She didn't say servant, she didn't say slave, but she says bond slave. And you know what? Bond slave is a particular kind of slave. It's the term that is used to refer to someone who voluntarily sells himself or herself into slavery. So what Mary was saying is, I am willingly committing myself to the unconditional service of God. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. This is... This is amazing response from Mary. You know, she could have been tempted to boast. Hey, I got, I'm the chosen one. She could have been tempted to rebel, but she didn't do any of those. It was total submission. We get a, a, a little bit more of a glimpse into her godly character when you look at chapter 2 and look at verse 19. <clears throat> it says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering in her heart. You know, I wondered what she was thinking about. Have you ever thought of that? Have you thought about what Mary and Joseph would be talking about when they went on their dates? I don't know what they were talking about. You know this one song, Mary, Did You Know? I love the words of that one, written by Mark uh, Lowry. He says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Did you know that Your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that he's come to make you new? That's good theology. And that one day he'll deliver you. That's deliver Mary. She also needed deliverance. Did you know that he would give sight to the blind man, calm the storm with a hand? Did you know that he walks where angels have trod? And I love this line, when you kiss your little baby, did you know that you're kissing the face of God? Did you know that your boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you hold in your arm is the great I am. You know, Mary's response is further seen in the Magnificat. Look at at Luke 1 and beginning with verse uh, 45, 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts. This is the Magnificat, by the way. This is... Uh, In Latin, it literally, uh, it's translated, my soul magnifies. So after Mary understood what was going on, this is how she responds. She sings a song of praise. In fact, if you look at this passage, there are 15 discernible quotations from the Old Testament, which tells me that Mary knew her Bible. She knew the Old Testament. She was a godly woman. And you realize how deep and how mature her faith was. She was wholeheartedly submitted to God and God's plan for her with joy and rejoicing. There was no questioning in her mind, no doubting, no misgivings, no fear, no more demanding, no demanding of uh, uh, answers, just an instant submission and confidence that this is God's truth. The Magnificat is Mary's heart in praise. Now, unfortunately, there are segments in Christendom who have gone way beyond the scriptural bounds by venerating Mary, lifting her to the level of Christ, and literally worshiping Mary as if she's God. In fact, uh, Pope John Paul II, he totally devoted his life to Mary. He had the letter M engraved on all the papal garments. And in his will, he left the care of the Roman Catholic Church to Mary. There's no biblical warrant for this. Mary herself, as good and as godly as she was, saw her own need for God's grace. She knew she was a sinner like everyone else and didn't deserve God's grace. And so she rejoices in God, her Savior. Verse 47, my Savior. Only a sinner needs a Savior. Mary is not to be worshipped. She is not God. She is a humble slave of God. God. Totally submitted to him. So then, why did God choose Mary? Not because she was perfect, but because of his good pleasure and his perfect plan. The issue was not Mary's individual worthiness or human merit, it was God's sovereign choice. So, as you celebrate Christmas this week, let us not forget all that God accomplished. On that first Christmas. A miracle of cosmic magnitude. And this incomparable miracle. Of divine incarnation. By means of virgin conception. Resulted in a person. Who is not only 100% deity. But also 100% humanity. A descendant of David. A descendant of Judah. Of Abraham and Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, it was not a mere theophany, an appearance of humanity which died on the cross. It was a genuine, sinless human being who bore our sins and served as our perfect substitute. The tragedy of our day is our failure to transmit the essence of the miracle of the incarnation as the heart and soul of what we pause to commemorate on Christmas. You know, it's all about transformation. And uh, I'm reminded of the novel by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, written on December 19th, 1843. And it has never been out of print. Classic. It tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, a wealthy, sour, stingy man. He said, and this is what he says, Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding. Sounds very British. <laughs> but yet, on one Christmas Eve, Scrooge is radically changed into a generous, happy man. With great humor and insight, Dickens captures the power of Christmas and the universal longing for inner peace. If you're here this morning and you have never experienced that inner peace, I urge you to consider who Jesus is and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because that is the reason why he came on Christmas and that's what we celebrate. Speak to one of us here on the staff and we'd love to show you from the scriptures how you too can find favor with God and have peace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. For this time of the year. This time of the year that reminds us. Why you came. And father I pray. That we would find time. To pause. To ponder. To meditate. With gratitude in our hearts. With joy and rejoice. At this amazing miracle that took place. To bring about the son of God. The son of the most high God. Lord, I pray that you will draw us closer to yourself, draw us closer to our families, draw families closer to one another as we rejoice together in who you are. I pray, Lord, that you'll also give us opportunity to share this truth with those who do not know, those who do not have any peace whatsoever. Would you help us, give us courage, give us wisdom and discernment when to say what and pray that we could spread the light. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time of singing and worshiping together. We pray that you would go before us and prepare the way this week and help us to glorify you through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, y'all. Have a good week.